it's, it's great to be here. It's been really fun getting to know all of you. And I've listened to a lot of your podcasts, but it's great putting it all together and hearing the story behind the stories. I'm Nikki, and this is Davia. And uh, Davia and I came to this whole uh, party via live radio, which I don't think we've talked a lot about. Uh, but I think it's re a really interesting time uh, in the world with podcasting because I feel like it's very much the time when we started. Uh, it has the same energy, the same mood, uh, the same experimentation. We didn't know what we were doing. We'd never heard NPR. We were working at a small uh, community station in Santa Cruz. We, we just graduated from college. We didn't know each other in college, but um, met afterwards and met because of this sort of passion for oral history. And oral history, I think, is very much at the root of what we do. And it still is. It's still kind of that idea of going in and listening, and listening to a person's story and a person's life in real time. And what we quickly realized was we loved doing that. We wanted to share that. But no one was going to sit through 16 hours of tape. And so that's when we taught ourselves to cut tape. And uh, and, and during that time when we were out and about and doing our live show, we would bring in Italian grandmothers and, you know, baseball players and farmers and farm workers on, onto our show. And we just didn't know what we were doing. We were really experimenting. And that's what I see people doing now in podcasting, uh, which is very exciting. And um, one of our mentors, one of the people that through our whole, pretty much our whole career, has been an inspiration is Sam Phillips. Uh, we were fortunate enough to uh, record him and interview him over several years uh, in the late 1990s when we were working on our series Lost and Found Sound. And uh, I just want to sort of start with Sam in the room uh, and what he thinks about sound. If people don't know about Sam, he was the man who recorded Elvis Presley, Roy Orbison, Jerry Lee Lewis, Howlin' Wolf, Ike Turner, and he said our favorite line to us, anyone has ever said, I think you know something about the acoustics of life. <laughs> <laughs> I've always had a romance going about sound and radio. Sound has its personality, like individuals. And kinda likes to be humored, you know. And I won't call this sound a science. I, I wanna call it the romance, it's a romance. There is nothing even close to being as intimate as a person calls. There's not. I mean, well, listen to this. Talking about sound. Girl, somebody knocking on my door. That quest for sound has kind of driven us for 30 years of recording together. And um, especially archival audio, Nikki found a 78 in her uh, father's garage years and years ago, it said, uh, it was a hand uh, cut uh, 78, and it said, to Louis, love Mrs. B, Louis darling, play this side first. And it was a recorded letter from a woman in 1943 to her husband who was a soldier in World War II and stationed in England. 
And she says, Emil says we'll ski in 43G, Lou, I hope so. And so she found that, and then that spurred me on. This is when we were in our early 20s to look for archival audio in my own family. And I went home to visit once, and I looked in a drawer, and there were the stacks of reel-to-reel -reel tapes. And one said Davia's first words, another said the FBI comes to the door, and there were these um, wonderful home reel-to-reels. Uh, and my parents were left-wing people, and they um, would do sort of radio dramas, and they were doing the McCarthy hearings of the 50s as a radio drama, and I'm a baby in it. I brought this tape to play to Nikki back up in Santa Cruz when we were beginning, and you hear my father, Lenny, say to his wife, Alice, uh, or uh, you hear them in the, their own version of the McCarthy hearings, and you hear uh, s him say, Davy, and I'm the baby in this moment in time, Davy, are you now or have you ever been a baby? <laughs> <laughs> and you hear my mother, who sounds like Mia Farrow in Broadway, Danny Rose, and she goes, Lenny, stop badgering the witness. <laughs> anyway, Nikki and I both came into this love of archival in that moment, and then it's been our quest for all these years, which led us to Sam. Anyway, so this next piece that we're going to play, well, and also the archival and our microphone, sort of our trusty steed. We say our microphone is a stethoscope listening to the complicated heart of the nation. It's sort of taken on a personality over all these years of doing it together. Um, Nikki lives in Santa Cruz on a commune. I live in San Francisco, and our offices are in Francis Coppola's building in North Beach, which is right near City Lights Bookstore, which probably a lot of you know. And Anytime we walk out the building, we look in their window and just see what the new books are. And there was this book suddenly about Patti Smith, a friend of hers, a photographer who had, they'd been pals at the same age Nikki and I had met. And she had photoed Patti Smith in her 20s. But in the book, it said, oh, and we made a movie together. And I lost the movie, but I have the tape. And so we called Judy Lynn up. We interviewed her, and we asked her to bring that archival audio. So here's just a little snap of that. Is it on? Yeah. What do I do now? <laughs> um, Patty Smith and Judy Lynn. I'm Judy Lynn. I'm a photographer. I've just published this book, Photographs of Patty Smith, 1969 to 1976. Jesus died for somebody's sins, but not mine. Patty and I met because we were both in Brooklyn. We met through our boyfriends, Peter Barnowski and Robert Maplethorpe. We went to Patty and Robert's apartment. Patty was in the kitchen cooking spaghetti sauce, and she didn't really talk to us. And Robert showed us drawings he had done. He'd been at Coney Island that day, and he'd taken off this kind of huge piece of skin from his sunburn. He was going to use it in a drawing. We were all admiring this huge piece of skin that he peeled off. Is it okay if I take my shoes and socks off? Yeah. It'll be real neat. Then I can show you the ankle bracelet I got on that says Brian Jones, and I always wear it. I found a cassette Patty and I made in 1969. We were making an eight millimeter movie in my tenement apartment in Brooklyn. And unfortunately, I lost the movie, but I did somehow save this tape she made. All right, what do you want me to do? Look at me. Turn around and go back and look at the wall again. Oh, okay. Are these clothes okay? Well, I mean, do you, well, do you want me to put anything special on or ugly on? I graduated from art school in 1969, and the idea of getting out of school had never dawned on me. 
So I was completely lost. <sighs> you really studied with it. I began photographing Patty Smith because I was taking photographs of everything. And when Patty and I would get together, we would take photographs. I wish we could go on. <laughs> you can hear it. It's a great podcast. Um, it, that that found sound, it just has such power. I mean, a voice, um, the breath. I, I love hearing her. You're in the room with her. Um, and here's Sam on the subject. For God's sakes, don't throw away outtakes. That is when you get to look that person over without the makeup on, so to speak. You get to feel the heartbeat of that person. And, you know, the idea of outtakes, Davey was saying, well, I think kind of the, the outtake idea has kind of changed now with digital. You know, it's always there and everything, but it's as good as lost if you do not label your stuff. And I mean, I, I, we sort of went round and round about whether this should be instructional or not. Well, this is the only thing I'm going to say. Just figure out a labeling system and label it. We have this accidental archive we've amassed over the last 30 years. We never intended to do what we've done our whole lives. We just did it. And so just keep track of your, of your stuff and save it. I mean, these voices, they come back. We had the idea, you know, I think like all of you, we're always trying to figure out how to tell the stories of people, how to do these portraits, how people combine to take, make bigger stories. I, I would say we are the cult of the story, <laughs> the two of us. Um, and uh, we wanted, we, we got this idea, this was quite a while back, that we would do the portrait of somebody and you would never meet that person, you would just hear them through all the answering machine messages that they got. And so we started searching for someone who was a hoarder of their answering uh, machine messages, and it turned out Taylor Negron, who was an actor and a comedian, had saved every answering machine message he ever had. So we called the piece Portrait of an Artist as an Answering Machine. Let's hear just a little of it. Sweetie, sweetie, it's Sue Harris. I'm in New York. I'm thinking of you and trying to, once again, just check in about how the, the possible play is going. Trying to pin down any little thing that I can pin down because everything still just sort of seems up in the air. Leave me a little message in Vermont, why don't you, about... Message saved. It's Carrie Snow, honey. Taylor. <sighs> all right, so I've been fired. I can't believe that bitch did it. After all, I, I slept on the floor of the hospital with her. Okay. So I have two attorneys now, no waiting. I guess I'm in show business, finally. Oh, well. All right, well, call me. I am so finished. No, no, I'm, I'm not finished in Hollywood. I'm just done. I'm going to go back to San Francisco, where they treat me like a comedic genius like Jerry Lewis in France. All right, I love you. Call me. Hey, Taylor, it's Albie. I want to know uh, if you went to the network, what happened? And most of all, did you tell them about me? <laughs> No, but also I wanted to see if um, we're going to have a little dinner party. So anyways, call me. Message erased. Taylor. Judy. Okay, you left me a message saying that you were concerned that I'm wasting my time on the internet. Well, look, that is, woo boy, are you wrong. I am finally using my time correctly. 
because, you know, I don't know if you know this. First of all, I'm unemployed. I'm not wasting my time anymore writing sitcoms. I am now using my time as being a professional dater. That's what I do now. That is who I am. I'm a dater. There's a book called How to Get Married After 35 where she tells you to make it your job if it's that important to you. And this is my new job. So that is my life. I've met thousands of men over the Internet. Most of them are freaks. But every now and then there's one that says that I'm beautiful. And that makes it all worthwhile. And you just watch me. You watch me get married and have babies by the time I'm 48. <laughs> Goodbye. It's, it's you want to say whoops. Well, this piece is just so. Um, since this piece, Taylor has died, his mother died, and Judy, who you just heard, has died. And you know, you go and you make radio, you go and make a podcast. You don't even think about that. You're just in the moment with the person that you're recording or the situation you're recording, and it's the most living, breathing, the beating heart of the story, and then cut to 10 years later, and half of the people's voices, you know, the ghost voices. So going back to what Nikki said, label your shit, store, keep, you just, uh, it's so precious in the moment, but you wind up with an archive and you wind up with people whose stories, you now become the keeper of their stories. So if we can urge you to do that. I've, I've been really interested too, listening, Ben, I was just listening to your piece and a lot of your work uh, uses the telephone. And it, it's so funny, you know, we hear the telephone messages on NPR all the time and when they do a report. And it sounds one way, it's in the room. But something about it being in your earbuds and hearing those messages, it's so very personal and, and intimate. And I've noticed the difference listening to these stories you know, in that way versus in the open air of, of radio. And I think that's an interesting aspect of, of podcasting as well. The one of the, I guess our session is called Close Get Closer Audio, Making Audio Movies for Your Mind. And I think both Nikki and I, I think we really think we're making movies, not radio. It's a very cinematic experience for us. And we are always gathering visuals. As much as we're gathering sound, we gather visuals because there is no one medium anymore. As much as you can do radio or as you podcast, you're going to wind up at an event, and then you're going to want to show your work and play your work, and how great that moment to be able to show a photo or something archival. So we're always gleaning. So we just thought we'd play you just a little bit. We do a series called Hidden Kitchens. It's about secret, unexpected, below-the-radar cooking, how communities come together through food. And our most recent uh, season of that was called Hidden Kitchens, Kimchi Diplomacy, War and Peace and Food. And it's about when traditional politics and diplomacy have failed and when food helps solve the conflict or not. And um, anyway, this is just one of the pieces, a little excerpt from one of the pieces that was in that series. Uh, it's called Nobody Can Soldier Without Coffee, War and Peace and Coffee. My name is John Grinspan. I'm a curator at the Smithsonian Institution's National Museum of American History. I wrote an article called How Coffee Fueled the Civil War. 
reading through the diaries of Civil War soldiers, nurses, and people on the home front. I went looking for big stories about freedom and slavery, secession and union, and all they kept talking about was the coffee they had for breakfast, or the coffee they wanted to have for breakfast. The word coffee was more present in their diaries than the word war, bullet, cannon, slavery, mother, or Lincoln. You can only ignore what they're talking about for so long before you realize that that's the story. Union soldiers were given 36 pounds of coffee a year by the government. Soldiers drank it before marches, after marches, on patrol, during combat. One officer, General Benjamin Butler, ordered his men to carry coffee in their canteens and planned attacks based on when his men would be most caffeinated. His advice to other generals before a fight, if your men get their coffee early in the morning, you can hold. As these armies grow over the course of the war, they become makeshift cities with hundreds of thousands of people in them, some bigger than Atlanta, with no infrastructure. They're in battle between one or two weeks of the whole year. They're not shooting their muskets at enemies that much. They're not being chased or fired upon that much every day they make coffee. Union troops made their coffee everywhere and with everything, with water from canteens and puddles and brackish bays and Mississippi mud, liquid their horses would not drink. As soon as the war began, the Union put a blockade on southern ports so coffee could not be exported into the American South. I am Andrew F. Smith, author of Starving the South, How the North Won the Civil War. I teach food studies at the New School in New York. The Confederates had access to tobacco and southern foods. The northern soldiers had access to coffee. When there was not a battle going on, Confederate soldiers and Union soldiers met in the middle of fields and exchanged goods. By far the most important was coffee from the north to the south. People in the Confederacy are dying for coffee when they're being blockaded from having it. They invent all these makeshift coffees. Confederate soldiers roasted rye, rice, sweet potato, or beets until they were dark, chocolatey, and caramelized, ground them up, and made a brew. It contained no caffeine, but it was a cup of something warm and brown and consoling. Some Union soldiers got rifles with a little mechanical grinder with a little hand crank built into the buttstock. Sharp's Rifle Company made a carbine with a built-in coffee grinder. Soldiers would fill the stock with beans, grind it up, dump it out, and cook the coffee that way. As the morning starts, you could hear the sound of tens of thousands of people grinding coffee at exactly the same time. The sprawling makeshift city became a coffee factory. One diarist noted, little campfires rapidly increasing to hundreds in numbers would shoot up along the hills and plains. The encampment would buzz with the sound of thousands of grinders simultaneously crushing beans. Soon, tens of thousands of muckets gurgled with fresh brew. Grinders are precious city soldiers. When they have to flee, when they have to leave their other equipment, they always bring their grinders. Here's an irony. 
these soldiers who are fighting ostensibly to end slavery are fueled by this coffee coming from slave fields in Brazil, which had slavery for decades after the war ends in America. Writing in his diary in April 1865, the last month of the Civil War, Ebenezer Nelson Gilpin, a Union soldier, wrote, Everything is chaos here. The suspense is almost unbearable. We are reduced to quarter rations and no coffee. And nobody can soldier without coffee. So uh, part of, I think, why we included this, too, was the title is Future of Listening. Well, the future of listening is, is looking, too. And it's, it's really keeping all of the senses open, because every time you hear something great in a podcast, usually, I mean, this is what I do, I go and look it up online. And I want to know more. And I want to know about the person. And I want to see some pictures. And I want to do this. So it's, it's a, the podcasts, I think, are jumping off points a lot. They're introductions. And to have those good graphics and, uh, and to really pay attention to that end of it. And the other thing I think the future of listening is collective listening, like this, like pop-ups and pop-up magazines and uh, the Moth Story Hour. People are yearning to come together like we are and listen together and to hear things together and to be in community. And I, I feel that the occasional video and slide along with the, um, the sound really wakes the crowd up and, and just keeps it moving. So keep it moving. I thought maybe also I would just talk about that mix just a little bit. Um, I think it took us 200 hours to mix that story. Um, it's layer upon layer, you know, and do you say thousands of makeshift campfire, campfires sprang up before you hear the sound of the campfire or after? Do you hear, uh, you could hear the sound of hundreds and thousands of grinders on the hillsides in the morning. Do you hear the grinders first? Do you hear the grinders when you say it? Do you hear the grinders after? I mean, you are besieged with a million choices. Do you, oh, I imagine there were dogs on yonder hillside. So then you suddenly go and figure out, you'll add a dog to evoke that. OK, what's that music that's in that thing? We did a project years and years ago called the Sonic Memorial Project after 9-11. It was a collaboration with hundreds of producers and citizens around the nation. And we memorialized the neighborhood of Lower Manhattan after 9-11. And that recording was called Music for Bode Piano. And it was recorded live in, at the plaza at the World Trade Center. And we had had that. And that was the theme music of our Sonic Memorial Project. So that was right after 9-11. But as we were trying to score that scene, that piece of music came back to our mind. Um, so again, keeping yourself, remembering all the things you've done in the past, keeping access to your stuff. We went and bought old vintage coffee grinders and old coffee and close mic'd it, farm mic'd it, one coffee grinder, seven coffee grinders. One time we performed it live. Ben was there at uh, the Ace Theater in Los Angeles with our Radiotopia We had collective. a fog machine. That was <laughs> like the highlight of anything we've ever done on stage. A and, fog machine. Yeah, it's true. <laughs> and our colleague Nathan Dalton came out in a Civil War uniform with a grinder. And we had given 50 people in the audience secret coffee grinders and coffee. 
and when that cue, that scene that you heard where it said, in the morning you could hear the sound of distant coffee, 50 people throughout the theater stood up and began grinding coffee, and the smell of ground coffee filled the theater. So just saying, you know, radio is such, it can be such a theatrical medium. You can, it's now performance art again, in that way that there was live radio drama before. It's all kind of come full circle. Oh, yeah. Where we, are we, we headed? We are just so full we're DJing of this ridiculous year. sayings that just fuel us. We say our microphone's a stethoscope. We say our microphone is a camera, and we tend to shoot in close-up. We're going to go to, we say our microphone is a Molotov cocktail. It explodes the truth. These are just sayings to little watchwords and guideposts for us. Um, I thought we would move to the Hidden Kitchens series. and So... We told you about Hidden Kitchens. The other thing we try to do is collaborate with as many people as we can. And every time we do a series on NPR, we open up a phone line on NPR and we ask the nation, now the world, what is, if it's the Hidden Kitchen series, we say, what is your hidden kitchen? Who are the local kitchen visionaries we should know about? Um, who glues your community together through food? So anyway, this story is, uh, when we did it, um, 2,789 minutes of messages came flooding into that phone line, 36 CDs full of messages from all over. And those, we often use those phone messages to be the jumping off points of stories. So let's just hear a little of this one. You have 52 new messages. Hey, my name is John T. Edge, and I live down in Oxford, Mississippi, in direct Southern Foodways Alliance. There's a woman y'all need to know about. Her name is Georgia Gilmore. She was a cook in the 1950s in Montgomery, Alabama. And when I think of hidden kitchens, I think about the story of her backdoor restaurant, her secret kitchen that fueled the civil rights movement. Hey, how you doing? You live on the street. Do you know where uh, Miss Gilmore used to stay? Yeah, Miss George Gilmore. That's Miss Gilmore house down there. You see that marker down there, that historical marker? Oh, yeah, I see it now. You see the plaque in the yard? George Teresa Gilmore. I'm her son, Councilman Mark Gilmore, Jr. George Gilmore. She could cook. 1920, 1990. She was a stone cook. Her food was cooked on the mama level. And Georgia was like... Big Mama, Southern-type mamas, maybe 10 or 15 of them. Now, my mother at the time was a midwife by profession. She cooked at National Lunch Company in Montgomery when the movement started. When Mrs. Rose Parks was arrested for refusing to give up a seat in 1955, Mama got involved in the bus boycott. She lost her job because management learned of her being a part of this movement that was going on. My name is Johnny Rebecca Carr, and I am the fifth president of the Montgomery Improvement Association. Stop that Alabama bus. I don't want to ride. During the bus boycott, City of Montgomery brought suit against King and 90 other members of the Montgomery Improvement Association in March of 1956. They were claiming that the bus boycott was an unlawful conspiracy. Georgia Gilmore testified in court. She, in essence, called out this bus driver who had kicked her off a bus. When Miss Gilmore stood up in court, she got fired. You cannot be afraid if you want to accomplish anything. You got to have the willing, the spirit, and above all, you got to have the get up. Everybody could tell you Georgia Gilmore didn't take no junk. 
And Reverend Al Dixon, if you pushed her too far, she'd say a few bad words, and if you pushed her any further, she would, um, she'd hit you. She was swift on her feet. She could move. I'm weighed by 350, 400 pounds. My little king is called a tiny. The whole line should be God is God a is battle act. I don't know, put that line. There's uh, the the idea of close, uh, you know, getting, you know, get close and then get closer. Uh, I think it's getting close to the story, really um, immersing yourself, delving into it as deeply as you can. And it also is sort of a physical thing with your microphone. Um, you really have to be daring and get up close. You really have to close mic someone and get the resonance of their chest. And uh, you really have to use headphones. And you really have to pay attention to how you're recording to get that sound that makes you feel like, like you're close and like your listener is close. And so I just really stress keeping all that closeness in mind when you're, when you're putting these stories together and you're out in the field. It's hard sometimes, but and body language and getting physically close to a person is not always easy, but always worth it. I think the last piece that we'd like to play, and Ben's going to come up, and then the three of us will take questions, so we'll all hash it out together. Um, is uh, comes from the Sonic Memorial Project that we were talking about, and um, we were so fortunate during that time to collaborate. Do people know Jamie York? He's over at WNYC, and we did um, some of the Georgia Gilmore story with Jamie, and this next story. Um, again, the idea of the Sonic Memorial was to build a memorial in sound. Thousands of people participated in it. It had a website as well. It still lives. People still contribute sound to it. And um, we call this, I guess, partly why we wanted to play this story in particular is, again, that idea of making really cinematic stories. And a lot of it is how, in part, we ask the questions. We're always saying to people, describe that, paint a picture of that take me there, walk me through it, you know, things that, and also, as you can see, most of our pieces, 99% of them are non-narrated as well. And so often, I think, Bethany, you were saying, ask people several times, somebody on stage before said that we are asking, maybe Jonathan, you did, we're asking people oftentimes to um, answer the same question framed in different ways. We will often say, you know, our questions aren't going to be in these stories. Our we don't narrate our stories, so maybe if you would incorporate our question, that just usually confuses people. You know, you think it's going to help you, but often it kind of makes them self-conscious. But anyway, we look for different ways to, and we always at the beginning of stories, at the beginning of interviews, um, we ask people to introduce themselves, say their name, where we are, what they do. Let's say we do that at the top. And then when the interview is done, we do that same thing again. And we do that for everyone, because if you're not narrating, you want, if you're not going to say, Georgia Gilmore lived in Montgomery, Alabama, you need somebody to be saying those things. We also love it when other people in a story talk. We always say to people, who else should we talk to for this story? Because often those, when they tell you that, we wind up using their intro of that person as the handoff. And there's something kind of beautiful about that dovetail, too. Anyway, um, 
and listen when you're hearing this again we're, we were just trying to take you take you there and so we had about 50 different arrows that were throwing at that idea of how to bring you into this space It's three right now inside our studios. That's the way it's going to be for the next couple of days or so. Don't forget Radio Bingo tonight. Ten thousand dollars. The Nicker, the Twin Towers. The Twin Towers, the Twins, the Nicker, the Jamal. I'm a Burke clan, huh? We go clan. Bill O'Hara Oaks from Aquas. Yeah, when I work on our World Trade Center, that was the year of 69. I was working up in New Jersey. You can see it from there, the tower was going up. They told me it's going to go up to 110 floors. Huh? I said, I want to get on that build. Saturday night, 8 o'clock. The Gunawaga Mohawk Senior Lacrosse Team get back in action once again. Walter Bova, here in the Gunawaga Indian Reserve. 99% of the reservation are land workers. My brother was, and my whole family was at one time. One of the elders takes you under their wing, and you, know, you gotta learn how to crawl before you can walk. My name is Pete LaFleur, and I worked in the World Trade Center in 1969 and 70. I was a connector of steel. My mother's brother was a great iron worker. My grandfather worked on the Empire State Building. He worked in Brazil, he worked in France, San Francisco Bay Bridge. Weekends when they came home, you sat around in the family and that's all they all talked about. It's all you heard, all your life. When you started working yourself, you could almost do the job because you, you were talking so much about it when you were a kid. My name is Randy Horn. I've been an iron worker for 33 years. The Trade Center was the most time I ever spent with my father, one-on-one. -on -one. I never really knew him. He was always away providing for his family. I learned to know him on the job. My father put me in the gang, start bolting up right away. I was on the North Tower. North Tower started first. I was a pusher, a foreman. It's like a band leader. What pieces go where, A, B, C, and so forth. I forget I was on that job, what? Uh, about 10 years, and I came back and put up the antenna. I had my son with me, and it was one of his first jobs. And up about three quarters of the way up the antenna, there's a catwalk. So I got my son over there, he was, everything was all right. Everything was foggy. All of a sudden, a damn fog lift. And now, now he's looking down, he sees cars about this big. <laughs> I know one thing, that building on a good windy day, when you come off that thing, you feel like a drunken sailor. The height didn't even bother me at the time. I could go uh, 120 at the time. You think twice now when you're walking on the steel. Walking on the steel with the wind, if you get some gusses, it could throw you right off. Okay, and all of a sudden the wind uh, picks up and uh, you just try to balance yourself. You would have to jump from the top of the beam and into the bottom of the beam and grab the top and hold on. They call it coon. You gotta coon it. All of a sudden, the wind gets you, then you jump, and you crouch down, and you grab the, the flanches of the beam, so you won't fall off. Then when the wind dies down, you get back up and keep going. Well, that was daring, and that's a daring job. Because when you're walking a girder, the wind is blowing, say, from the uh, north. Now you're leaning into it. 
all of a sudden the wind stops you, keep on going. Could you imagine? You're in new space in New York City. You're kind of in this air that nobody's ever been there before. On the B Tower, we were losing time, $50 extra a week just to uh, stay up there. We have to bring our own sandwiches. We used to carry our own tents with us, lean tools, whatever we needed. We just live to hear the word lean to. <laughs> we will always lean to in a piece. It's in. <laughs> Doesn't matter if it belongs or not. We'd uh, like to welcome Ben Walker to the stage, now our fellow Radiotopian with a theory of everything. 